Welcome to Caterpillar Goo. This is Rod. And this is Flora. So Rod, what's the next episode about? This one is an interview with my dad. It's kind of a a bookend to the one from my mom. They kind of talk about some of the same stuff, some different stuff. They have different perspectives on their shared history. It's cool. It's fun. Cool. I like your dad. He's the quiet one, the listener. And he seems like the anchor for the family. Hold it together. Hard worker. Loving dad. Yeah? Yeah. He's a good guy. I love my dad. How was the interview process? It was it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. I thought it would be like pulling teeth to get him to talk, like I'd have to ask a million questions to get a full sentence out of him because he just doesn't talk all that much. But he talked for almost two hours. I think my mom was jealous. He talked to me for so long. I would think it would be difficult since his stroke would be difficult to express himself, no? Yeah, but he's also never been that much of a talker even before the stroke. Did he like it? I think he did. I mean, he stayed. He didn't complain. He didn't say, are we done yet? (laughs) Are you his favorite kid? Yes, definitely. Of course. Of course. Are you like your dad? In some ways. I'm more like my mom. I think my brother is more like my dad. But I got a little of my dad in me, too. The good parts. Ooh, what kind of good parts? (laughs) Well, actually, not that much of my dad in me. He's a hard worker. He's dedicated and detail-oriented and, you know, good at stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I'm flighty, like my mom. It's a good balance. Yep, they're a good pair. They're cute together. So it was fun doing an interview with each of them. What are we doing your parents? Um, Next time we go to New York. All right. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Let's tag team them. exercise I get. Some days it's painful to exercise and sometimes it's not. I sit and try to meditate and it does nothing for me, but when I'm really quiet or when I'm just totally listening to music, it's like somebody plants knowledge into my head. I know and I understand things, which I had no idea before. So... My meditation is basically checking out and listening to music. I, uh, early on in our marriage, I was uh, in an apprenticeship program, tool and die maker. I had to really concentrate at work. 
it's not easy for me to relate to other people, but I really worked on the, uh, the journeyman. I would constantly hang around them and ask them questions and ask them the better, best way to do stuff. And I got in as, I guess, a favorite pupil with about three or four of them. So that when I come home, I was exhausted and then I would lay down on the floor and play a Beethoven record or something with earphones on and Robbie would get so pissed off at me because she was making dinner and taking care of the kids and I was checked out. She didn't understand that that's the way I did my uh, meditation. I've been in and out of a lot of churches. My parents were married in a can't think of the religion right now. Reverend Grace, I remember the name of the, the preacher that married him and I was there. The guy wore a collar, but he wasn't a Catholic. But he was, he was deaf, he ministered to the deaf people. He was deaf himself. He was uh, in the deaf community and in the basement of his church is where they held all the Deaf fraternity meetings. It was based on on the Masons. Only it was all deaf men. It was called the frat. That's what my mom and dad called it, the frat. We're going to the frat. When they went went to frat, the women all sat on the outside, sat outside in the waiting room. The kids played on the floor. And when the big meeting was over, they'd throw the doors open and everybody would go in and have a big social event. And then my mother's side of the family was deep into the Reformed Christian Church and I went to a lot of Bible schools and Sunday schools and stuff and that until I was about third, about third or fourth grade. And then I felt like I needed to get hooked up with different churches, so I went to a Methodist church, I went to a Holy Roller church with a friend, and I went to a couple of Catholic services, and as a teen, none of that stuff was stuck with me. Just because there was so much religion on my mother's side of the family, I felt I was supposed to do it in order to be accepted by them, I should have a church, but I never could find one. And I came away from it having no respect for organized religion. Because the main thing they wanted, no matter what it was, they wanted money up front. It seemed like everything was driven by the collection plate. If you were a big donor, you got a lot of attention. If you weren't, you didn't get much. And that's what really turned me off. My dad was born on the farm in uh, Kansas, and he was sent to the Kansas State home for the deaf and blind. My, but my dad was born deaf, they think, cause in the early days when they had the traveling doctors going around the frontier and the farms and stuff. My grandmother evidently had a lot of 
morning sickness. And the doctor prescribed quinine. Well, later on, they found out that quinine did stuff to the unborn child. My mom came over on the boat from Holland with her mother. And my mother, we don't know if she was born that way or with some kind of sickness or something that she got in Holland or on the boat or what, but ever since she was a baby, she was deaf. And then my mother was, because she was deaf-mute, she was sent off to the school in Colorado Springs. The strange thing is that uh, the Colorado School for the Deaf and Blind insisted that deaf people learn to lip-read and speak. And so my mother was pretty good at lip-reading and speaking, and they were discouraged from using sign language. So if you compare the deaf people now that use sign language to the old people that use sign language, now it's all really broad and all over the place. And the older people, were, their signs are all close in and secretive about it, where now they're just flamboyant about it and their signs are all over the place. And my dad, Kansas School for the Deaf and Blind didn't work that way. They were teaching, teaching them to do stuff and sign language and be able to be self-sufficient. Same, my dad's side of the family, all of people learned sign language, the hearing and the non-hearing. So I had no idea whether they were hearing or any memory of whether they were hearing or not. On my mom's side of the family, I had one uncle that learned the deaf sign language, learned the deaf alphabet, and he could do that. He was the only one that made any effort to sign to my mother. All her other brothers and sisters didn't, because she had been sent to school, and they were told that she was to learn to lip read, and, and so they would talk to her. But the thing is, it's real easy to ignore somebody like that because all you could do is turn away. Turn around, they can't see your signs, they can't read your lips. So whenever there was an argument or something, it was easy just to walk away from it. <laughs> My dad's family had a big get-together once every summer. They came from all over the place. They were Kansas and Nebraska and Western Colorado and they'd have these big long picnics on the weekend and there were aunts and uncles and cousins that I didn't even I didn't even know the, all the cousins I had but I never just seemed to fit in. He worked in a factory. He was uh, he started out as in a printing shop paper cutter, cutting stuff for the print shop, and then ended up in uh, Schwader Brothers, Samsonite, cutting stuff for the suitcases and plastic tops of uh, card tables and chairs, and then my mom worked there on the assembly line putting stuff together. And my 
from Kojiyama and Aunt Julie also worked in the same factory. Schwader Brothers hired a lot of, I guess what they called, the handicapped people. He was a rancher. He raised horses. And at one time, he had a riding stable up on Lookout Mountain, just above Denver. He had two boys, and the youngest one, Johnny, had a, a pinto pony named Ruben. And he taught me how to ride. And I could put the bridle on Ruben and lead him over alongside the fence. They had a rail fence, and I'd climb up the rail fence and get on him. And I was, what, five years old? John would go off hunting. He'd go out, he had a rifle, and he'd go out shooting magpies. I had no idea what magpies were. And so I followed, I was determined I was gonna find following one day and see where he was going. I see these cow patties in various places, you know. So I thought cow patties were magpies. <laughs> My cousin John shot them. <laughs> I couldn't have been four or five years old. And then he, one time he, he put his rifle in. The, we had a, there was a kind of a mudroom entrance to the farmhouse. He left his rifle in. There against the thing and they had the thing in the chamber and I went up there and was messing with it and I inadvertently pulled the trigger and it shot a hole in the roof. My Uncle Clarence was really pissed off at John for doing that. My bed was in this big room where the radio was. There was no TV in those days. It was during the war. World War II. I remember there was a big old tree in the backyard. When I wanted to get away, I'd just climb up in that tree and sit up there by all by myself. Could see the whole neighborhood. I don't remember when I realized that there was a hearing world and a deaf world. Uh, you never knew. I mean, you could talk to some people and you had to sign to some people. And some people were were talking and signing and, you know, there was no distinguishment. And a lot of the deaf people could read lips. I don't know when I realized that. I suppose it happened to me sometime in high school. When you know how high school gets, how clannish and cliquish it is, and some kids are favored by the teachers and some aren't. And when I realized I was different during high school, I was really aware of it because people would kind of shy away from me if I tried to be friendly with somebody they wouldn't necessarily because I was a, I was a, a child of dummies.
that's what deaf people were called in those days. They were deaf and dumb. And the, the deaf and dumb part came from deaf and dumb couldn't speak. But the dummy part carried on. It's not being intelligent. school. I don't ever, in, in junior or any of those, I don't ever remember having a parent-teacher conversation. Nobody ever, none of my teachers ever contacted my parents. Even when I, I wouldn't do my homework or my grades were down, there was nothing. They just passed me along. And in high school I signed up to take a Spanish class and I was discouraged. I should take English. I was going to sign up to take some math classes and I was discouraged that was to take a general math class where the big thing was to learn how to write a check and keep a bank account and pay your taxes and there was none of that geometry stuff. I didn't get hooked on that stuff until my senior year in high school I finally got into an algebra class. I hated high school. I just didn't fit. Didn't know how to talk to girls. I had no experience with girls. When my friends come over, it was really awkward. If somebody came home with me, it was really, really awkward. Because of my parents. My parents would try to be friendly with them, but they didn't know how to deal with it. And so they just dealt with me away from my house. I really got big into, into leather work because I had a industrial arts teacher, Mr. Landon was, he taught print shop, leather shop, and woodworking. And I took all those courses. And recently I thought, I was going to be an industrial arts teacher and I thought about getting a degree to be able to become a forest ranger, but there was no way I could figure out how the hell I was going to go to college to do that. Although it was a lot easier to go to college in those days than it is now. The costs weren't so damn much. And I was really into skiing and through, through the Boy Scouts and some of us the neighborhood learned to ski. It was scary in the beginning until I learned to parallel ski. Once I got out of the snowplow thing and got fairly good at parallel, I never was Olympic quality, but I could do all right. And just loved the freedom. It just felt free. Riding up the top of the mountain, letting go. After I got out of the Navy, I really went into it for a couple of years. In fact, that's how I met Ruth, my first wife. We met through a friend, and she was really impressed with my skiing, and I took her skiing every weekend. She was really into that. And then she, somehow we ended up getting married, and I really got into skiing. And it was a really good friend that we skied with a lot. And he said he was going to join the Navy, 
At that time, when you turned 18, you were eligible for the draft. So I, tur I turned 18 in 1955, and that was right between the Korean War and the Vietnam War, that period. His argument was, if we join the Navy before we turn 18, we get out on our 21st birthday. Plus, the Navy will send us to school. He laid that laid it out, you know, that we were, we were going to end up getting drafted for two years anyway. And there was this opportunity, and I just, I felt, yeah, this is a good idea. It wasn't, it wasn't all that analytical, it was, it felt right. And so I did it. We took tests and everything, and both of us qualified as uh, machinists. Yeah, I was, uh, I was out in 58, I rejoined in 61, I was out for three years. I remember going and applying for this one job, and the guy interviewed me and said, no, you're too young, you couldn't do all that. And that was the end of the interview. He didn't believe me. And at the same time I was going to night school. It was the uh, late 50s and early 60s recession, and you'd work for three months and you'd get laid off, and you'd work for three months and get laid off. And then when I had such a hard time with all the on-again, on-off-again jobs, and I don't know how I found out, the Navy came up with a need for my particular skill. When I got out the first time, I was a second-class petty officer, and I found out that I could go back in as a second-class petty officer. Got assigned to a ship in San Diego. And we started, originally it was all those little diesel boats and we worked on those all the time. And then the nuclear subs started to come in. Some of us were cleared to work on the nuclear subs. And so then I was going to be make a career out of it. first class Hayden report to the quarter deck. I thought, no crap, what have I done now? We go up there, and the guy hands me a son, he only served me with separation papers. I opened them up and looked at them, and it was, you know, on the legal language. And I showed the officer, and I said, I don't know what to do about this. He says, well, the first thing you gotta do is get a hold of the chaplain. New things weren't really good with us, but I didn't think they were that bad. It was a real slap in the face getting served. I was just dumbfounded. I don't know what to do now. I had to ask some officer who was probably a lieutenant junior grade or something, who was probably 23 years old or something, you know, what do I do now? So I made an appointment with the chaplain and talked to him, and then he got her and me into counseling. And it broke down when it's divorce. 
It was really traumatic. I had no idea what to do. I was at a loss. And that chaplain gave me options and what to do. Well, you can just not contest it and let her have the kids and stay in the Navy. And I thought, no, crap, I've seen too many of those guys. I'm going to be one of them. I want a relationship with my children. He just gave me all these different options to think about. If it's something physical, like a computer or computer program or a piece of machinery or a car or building or something like that, I'm very analytical. But when it comes to feelings and interactions with people, I'm more intuitive. One of my big things that I've known over the years is that when a door opens, you look to see whether you want to go through that door or not, whether it feels right or not. And that's pretty much the way I've gone, from being a piecemeal machinist to a maintenance machinist to a tool and die maker, to a numerical control programmer, to a software developer, and that's where I was until I retired. But all of those were, a door opened and I went through. There was no analytical thing about it. Did it feel right? Yeah, I felt like that was a good thing to do. And then when the divorce happened, I already, you know, I was committed for, committed for another four years. The padre, the, the uh, chaplain, said, you know, you can file, you could file for custody. And if you get custody, you can get an honorable discharge for hardship. And I just felt like, am I good enough to be a father, you know, to those kids? And I just had the feeling, yeah, you can do this, but it ain't gonna happen anyway, but what the hell, go for it. And I'll be damned if it didn't happen. And I thought, no, crap, now what do I do? <laughs> and then that time, Harold uh, had just gotten a divorce, and he was a single father with two kids. He had this big house, and he said, come live with me and we'll help each other out. And so we did. And that's the best thing that ever happened to me. But at the time, moving the resistant to it, I was confused by it, scared of it. What am I going to do now? What am I going to do with the kids that I love so much? I had to I heard so many terrible things about split families, you know, kids bouncing back and forth and back and forth, loyalties and, and mothers saying bad things about the father and the father saying bad things about the mother that at one point I thought that if I ever have to get divorced that I'll just let go of the kids not be in their life. That was dumb-headed. I realize that now. Just so many things happened there that I had no clue. I had no idea what I was doing. Just taking it a day at a time. Then when I got, I got out of, when I got out, the, out of the Navy the second time, 
because I worked on nuclear submarines, I had a uh, top, uh, not a top secret, but a secret clearance. So when I came out, I went to Rocky Flats, which was the big nuclear plant that made triggers for the atomic bomb. And I applied there and I said, well, it's probably going to take about six months to get your clearance through the FBI. Three weeks later, I got a call that says, you're hired. I was a, a maintenance machinist. We just went around fixing pumps and stuff, and generators. And they opened up an apprenticeship and I was close to 40 years old. The cutoff date was 40. I took the test. I, Went into the interviews and took all the tests and everything they gave us, and there was two of us that were picked for the apprenticeship, and I went into that. So I went into the tool and die shop, and that's where they made all the tooling and everything for the equipment, the nuclear stuff. It was all classified stuff. Well, when I got finished my apprenticeship, I became a journeyman, and I worked nights. But during that time, they brought in a, a milling machine that was numerically contro controlled. And all those old journeymen, they had no clue about that thing. So I really jumped on that and I learned all how to manually program it. And so whenever they wanted to put something on there, well, I was assigned to do it. They had other numerical control machines all, all through the plant. Well, there was an opening there for a programmer, and I applied for it and got it. And then, and in the meantime, during that time, I had taken some nighttime college courses on Fortran and drafting programs through the University of Colorado. something else. That dating thing was not analytical. That was totally gut. I kept seeing it in the paper and throwing it away. Seeing it in the paper and throwing it away. And I got to read it. But now what the hell? I'll try it. And I was ready to give up on that. Because I had two or three bad dates. And we're going and walking down down the steps into her garden-level apartment. And opening that door and thought, okay, this is a good one. And we went out and the rest is history. Such a whirlwind. We were going to get married in six months or something. I didn't think it was right to get married right away. The divorce, the divorce wouldn't even be final until March. So then we thought, okay, in the summer. No, let's get married. How about spring break? And I thought, thank God this is soon, but I've been following her lead for years. I just know that it sure as hell worked out. 
here we are almost 50 years later. When Mom and I met, she was determined that she had found me and that I was the guy and she was going to marry me and I had just two years ago gotten out of a marriage. I wasn't even, I didn't even know who the hell I was. I had two little kids. I was living with my brother in his basement and your mom was determined we were going to get married and she was going to have two kids. And then we got married and she was determined she was going to have her own kid. And then she had her own kid and then she determined that she wanted another one. And I was, in those days, it was all the, the hippie thing, you know, you replenish yourself. So I'd already, I was a husband and a wife and we had a boy and a girl. So when I got married again, I said, okay, one more for Robbie. But then she was empty arm syndrome or something and she was determined to was going to have you. And so we had you. Best thing in the world. After I worked at Rocky Platts for seven years, I got laid off. They were cutting back, cutting back on nuclear bombs and everything. So they had to cut back on the step, and they ended up closing Rocky Platts because it was so contaminated. For a long time, I had to go in and be monitored by medical once a year because I was exposed to americium and some other chemicals I don't remember. I'd go in and they'd take blood. I was exposed, but I was never contaminated, so I was all right. I knew that if I was just a piecemeal machinist, I'd be doing that three months on, three months off thing for the rest of my life and never getting out of debt. So I just followed the path. I knew that I had, because uh, the layout from the Rocky Plants, the bomb factory, I uh, was back in that mode of working in small shops for short periods of time. And I knew that I was going to get into numerical control. I wanted to, but my goal was the eastern boundary of Colorado, anything west, and the southern boundary of Colorado, anything north. And all I kept getting was this crap in Texas. <laughs> and they kept offering to send, bring us down here for a weekend, for a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and put us up. And I thought, well, what the hell, it's for the opportunity to get out and spend the weekend on somebody else's dime. And I came down here and I was interested. They were interested in me because I worked so hard at it. I spent a lot of time self-educating. Computers have been the best damn thing in my life. Although, I got a lot of enjoyment out of my kids. Just enjoying watching you do things and try things and be an assistant coach for your soccer team and watching Rick at swim meets and I was a timer and a stroke judge and also shot the gun starter. I was 
either sit in that stupid tent or else go out and participate. Mom just really enjoyed sitting there and I enjoyed watching how the thing worked and keeping track of Rick's times. Yeah, I got involved in scouts because of you. They'd fill out those papers and I'd very carefully fill them out so that I didn't raise any flags to where they'd want me to do something. And then when you guys went into Weeblos, and I said, okay, I can do it for a year. And the next thing I knew I was a scoutmaster and seemed to get all the misfits. We had some strange kids in our group. One of my favorite memories is that board escort you had when I taught you how to put new brakes on it. We went through one wheel together and then I showed you how to do it and then Hooks said, okay, you're on your own now. And then watched you do it on your own. It was, it was big. Ruth was a very uh, outgoing person. Early on, her dad was a senior forest ranger. It entailed being in, you know, having lots of parties and groups and cocktail parties. And it's pretty much the same with with Mob now, Robbie. I'm just uh, also ran. I just tag along. We go into groups and she's willing to talk to anybody and I have a hard, hard time. Especially with strain, with people I don't know. I, I can open up like to you. I can have a conversation with you or I can have a conversation with Rick. You get into a group of people like Rick's New Year's or Christmas when he has people over. I have a hard time talking to those people. Some of them I can talk to because I know them, but I can't talk very long. I don't know what to say. My brain just does not work that way. I'm very, very shy. I had a hard time in my jobs too. I just never really fit into those kind of groups. But, but the thing of it is, my brother Harold went through the same experience and he didn't have any trouble. My cousin Jimmy and my cousin Elaine, man, Elaine was really into it. I mean, she could talk sign language with the fastest of them, and I couldn't. People, I could tell that people would automatically slow down when they talked to me. And I would have to, I would say, what? A lot. And they would spell it out, and I would understand what the sign was. But deaf people don't like to spell things out. And so it was easy for me to check out because if you're not looking at somebody and reading their signs, you're not conversing with them. So you're looking over here, they're signing, and you're not paying attention. And it's a cop-out, and I realize that now, 70 years later. If I have nothing in common with I, I'm, I'm at a loss. Walk up, you know, Robbie can, Robbie can talk to store clerks and have conversations and I don't know what the hell to say other than have a good day. <laughs> I don't know how to deal with those kinds of situations. My mom was good at, and my dad too, just talking to people. 
had carried a little pad of paper and a pencil in his shirt pocket. And he had no qualms of whipping that sucker out and writing, talking to people. My mom would, mom would talk to them and try to read their lips. Biggest problem she had was that once people learned that she was reading their lips, they would exaggerate everything, and she couldn't understand it. <laughs> best thing I ever did was get hooked up with your mom. She'd given me so much love and stability. We still have our rough edges mostly. It's me not talking to her enough. That's because she's lost all her friends in Dallas. It's become more important to her to be more interactive with me. I have to cope with it. One of the things is this iPhone here, I couldn't live without it. See that? 10.30. This one here, 10.30. It's my alarm clock. I mean, get up and talk. When I get up out of bed, it's time to get up out of bed because I slept in as long as she will tolerate. And I'm, I have to talk. I, sometimes I just calm down the hall saying, I'm walking and I'm talking, I'm walking and I'm talking, and then we'll get it, a conversation, but sometimes it doesn't work out. And then this one here says, get up for PT, which is physical therapy, and talk and have a happy face. Because she's convinced that those girls will work harder for work harder with me if I have a happy face with them. The therapist. So that's how I'm learning to cope with that stuff. The big thing that we have is that she's a balloon and I hold on to her string. I keep her grounded, but every now and then I have to kind of float with her. Keep me in the world, not let me crawl in a hole, to give me love. And it works. It works for us. Isolated. Just me and Robbie and the therapist. And the therapist run out. And Robbie, over the years before that, has been talking about someday we need to move to Austin to be with our kids and grandkids, you know. And then when I was in uh, in house rehab, I just realized that that maybe that's what we ought to do. And then it was a whirlwind. <laughs> I had nothing more there. She had all her friends and her contacts and her woo-woo stuff was all up in that, that whole area up there. And we came down here and she had a, she's still having a rough time, but she had a really rough time in the beginning, mostly with the driving thing. Over the years I've had to map things out for 
and I still do that. I map out where she wants to go, but she's, she's really proud of her because she's got to where she's moving around a lot. Big events in my week are physical therapy. Now that's about to stop, and I have to do it on my own. I have to force myself to do it. It's too easy to blow it off. Mom will say, let's go to lunch, and I blow the rest of the afternoon off, which means I don't do the exercises I should. I've got to do it. got to get myself on a regimen. You know, the old saying, use it or lose it, and with me, it's really true. If I don't do it, I'll lose it. My uh, walking is worse than it was six months ago. Although I try, just don't seem to be able to get the rhythm good enough, fast enough. And Robbie's really patient with me. He just walks along at a slow crawl, either behind me or by my side. She does a lot for me. He's walking on a narrow line about doing stuff for me and not doing stuff for me. So you have to decide whether what I really need her to do and what I can do on my own. I try to do my own laundry, but she's pretty much grabbed a hold of that. When she hears me kicking the bucket down the hall, she runs out and grabs it and does it. But she leaves the shirts and pants out for me to hang up which I can do. I could follow the other stuff too, but she has a need to do something. So it's a fine line on what, what she wants to do and what she wants me to do. I've had it a few times, a couple of times since I stroked. I thought my family would be better off without me, but then I realized that's not true. Robbie would not be better off without me. Even though she has to do so much of the physical part of it, I still keep track of the finances and when things need to be paid. Mortgage and utilities and I give her moral support. I keep reminding her that she needs friends and she needs to make them. She's found a couple that she really lady friends that she really likes that she has coffee with on Wednesdays but I wish she could I really wish she could find a, a clan and, and I just have to keep reminding her that she needs to look and not give up on it so I can't give up I still got to hold that string the biggest thing is that she got all her talking and her communication with all those people she had up north now she depends on me to do it, and it's difficult for me, but I, I try hard to do it, but it doesn't satisfy her needs. People project onto me that I'm stuck up and antisocial. That's not true. I just don't know how to be social. It sounds like a cop-out you don't know how. Of course you should know how. I read all kinds of books on how to do it. I can't do it.
grassy and easy going and some of it's a struggle to climb up but I'm just on this path. Hayden's are resilient. I don't know whether it's in genes or whatever the hell it is. It's it's there. My next goal is make it to 85. Try to talk to my wife whenever I can. Enjoy my kids and grandchildren. Well, I'm, a, I'm satisfied with my life. I don't know how you make sense out of any of that. That was my dad, Rudy Hayden. I think I probably wore him out talking so much. He probably hasn't talked that much in the last 10 years. Thanks for doing it, Dad. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I heard stories I'd never heard before. I got a perspective on you that I didn't have before. And I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks, Rudy. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>